Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. So in this series, we're continuing to respond to questions that you have lifted up. And today and next Sunday, I want to respond to a question that a number of folks ask, which is, um, if God is God, why is there so much suffering in the world? To help us with that conversation, we're turning to Paul's letter to the Philippian congregation will be reading verses uh, 12 through 14 in chapter 1. As we come to this passage, let us first join together in prayer. Gracious God, it is your word and your word alone that is life for us, so we come, O oh God, hungering to hear you. As we gather around these ancient words, May your spirit breathe them to life in us that your word might live in us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. From Caesar's prison, the Apostle Paul writes this. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. I spent some focused time in Philippians over the past several years. I needed the wisdom I found in this old apostle. It was this relentless disease that has taken more than a million lives in America alone. It was the increased disparity of wealth. Not only that, there's now a baby formula shortage. How scary is that? And every day, we're shooting one another. And the hospitals are full. I could go on. You've got your list. You've got your anxieties and concerns. So it was no surprise to me when I started receiving the questions, Tom, where is God in all of this? Uh, the Philippian church was asking the same question. And this letter that Paul writes, he writes to address their concern. Were they concerned about? Well, their concern for Paul. He had been their pastor. They loved him, and he's in jail. And you know how concerned you get when you learn your pastor's in jail. 
They're concerned for Paul. They want to know if he's being mistreated. Is he cold? Is he hungry? Is he lonely? Yet if I understand the text, there is a deeper concern than their concern for Paul. It's a concern for themselves. Uh, because Paul is the Lord's apostle. Paul has been appointed by God to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. And if this is how the world treats the Lord's apostle, the Philippians are asking, what's going to happen to us? It's an old question. Why does tragedy fall on the innocent? Theologians call this problem theodicy. It's expressed this way. If God is all-powerful and God is loving, then how can there be innocent suffering? If God is all-powerful and God is loving, then why do people suffer? It's an intellectual jail cell. There's no way out. For the longest time, For the longest time, suffering was assumed to be the result of sinfulness. That was the explanation that Job's friends gave him. They said, we don't know what you did, but you had to do something. Look how bad your life is. You had to do something. But Tom Long, in his book, What Shall We Say, Evil Suffering and the Crisis of Faith? And if you're interested in this subject, this is the best book to read. He says that explanation, that suffering is a result of our sin, it came crashing down in the mid-18th century. In 1755, a traveling merchant wrote in his diary, Never had there been a finer morning than the 1st of November. The sun shone out in its full luster. The whole face of the sky was perfectly serene and clear. And not the least signal of warning of that approaching event, which has made this once flourishing, opulent, and populous city a scene of utmost horror and desolation. He was not describing New York on 9-11 or Port-au-Prince after the earthquake or Mariupol. He was speaking of Lisbon. In the mid-18th century, Lisbon was known as a city of faith. It is estimated that in 1755, fully 10% of the population of Lisbon were monks, priests, or nuns. That's a lot. In November the 1st, Well, it's All Saints Day. So the faithful, they were all in worship. But at 9.30 in the morning, an earthquake shifted under the ocean floor about 60 miles away, and it reached the city shaking. The shaking lasted for 10 full minutes. Cathedrals packed with worshipers began falling down, killing folks in the midst of their prayers, Fires, many of them started by the candles that were in worship, began to race through the city, fueled by what felt like an apocalyptic wind. To escape the fires, 
surviving citizens rushed to the only safe place left, the harbor. And as they stood by the wharfs, they watched the water in the harbor get sucked out to sea and then return in a mountainous wave as a tsunami washed many to their watery death. Long describes it this way, like the beast rising out of the sea in the book of Revelation, this evil thing was not done with the people of Lisbon. It seemed to pursue them with a malevolent intelligence. The event shook not only the foundations of Lisbon, but the foundations of an intellectual and theological worldview that had stood from the time the Jews went to Babylon. The assumption of how God was at work in the world no longer made sense. Susan Nyman, a philosopher, she said, the 18th century used the word Lisbon much as we use the word Auschwitz today. It takes no more than the name of the place to mean the collapse of the most basic trust in the world, the grounds that made civilization possible. Sin as a justification for disaster no longer made sense. After Lisbon, people simply could not accept it as an answer. It's the same with us today. Now we have cable news. And there are tragedies like this every day. For many people, these realities make it difficult to believe in God. At least if God is all-powerful and God is loving, why is there so much suffering? It's an honest question. And since Lisbon, there have been theologians and pastors who have sought to provide answers. I'll share a few of them with you now. One you may know is the response of Rabbi Harold Kushner. In the 1980s, he wrote a very popular book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He wrote it because Kushner's son Aaron was diagnosed with a rare and dreadful disease called progeria. It's a disease that causes the body to age rapidly. It means that at the age of 13, Aaron Kushner died of old age. His body failed him. Kushner writes, I'd been a good person. I believed that I was following God's way and doing God's work. If God existed, and if God were minimally fair, let alone loving and forgiving, how could God do this to me? He continues, even if I could persuade myself that this came as a result of some sin or failing on my part, on what grounds does Aaron have to suffer? He was an innocent child, happy, outgoing three-year-old. Why should he suffer physical and psychological pain every day of his life? In search for answers, Kushner, like many, turned to the book of Job, and near the end, God speaks, and God says this, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like God's? You tread down the wicked where they stand, bury them in the dust together, then will I acknowledge that your own right hand can give you victory. 
Most interpreters hear these words as an affirmation of God's power. But Kushner read it as the inverse, as a confession of sorts. Kushner says, I take these lines to mean if you think it's so easy to keep the world straight and true, to keep unfair things from happening to people, you try it. Kushner says God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives. But sometimes it's more than God can do. Kushner faces the intellectual jail cell and finds the key to unlock the door by saying God's power is limited. God is not all-powerful. To quote Kushner, God's just doing the best that God can. Bart Ehrman felt, found that answer inadequate. Ehrman teaches religion at the University of North Carolina. He grew up Christian, fundamentalist Christian, actually, but now he no longer believes, kind of fundamentalist doesn't believe. Of his own journey, he writes this, I felt compelled to leave Christianity altogether. I did not go easily. On the contrary, I left kicking and screaming, wanting desperately to hold on to the faith I had known since childhood. But I could no longer reconcile the claims of faith with the reality of life. For many people who inhabit this planet, life is a cesspool of misery and suffering. The problem of suffering became, for me, the problem of faith. He continues, and for Ehrman, the pervasiveness and randomness of suffering makes God, as God has been understood, unintelligible. And Ehrman unlocks the intellectual jail cell. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. Why is there suffering? Ehrman unlocks that jail cell by saying... The evidence is in, and God does not love. God does not care. So God is not worthy of our worship. Theologian John Hick cannot accept that God is less than powerful or less than loving. But Hick answers this problem by saying we suffer for a reason. Suffering has purpose. Hicks says, what if the perfect creation is not some Caribbean vacation paradise, but what if the world is created to draw you and me to God, and that what draws us to God is tension, struggle, even suffering. Hicks says the perfect life is not a pain-free life like everything's lived on Novocaine. No, the good world is a world that brings challenge stitched into it. This is what Hicks calls soul-making or a person-making world. Hicks says, I have the key to the intellectual jail cell. God is all-powerful and God is loving, but Suffering, 
Suffering because it serves a purpose of soul-making isn't really bad. It isn't really suffering at all. I appreciate the honesty and courage of those who thought about this in this way, but I must admit for me, all of their answers are inadequate. They may work for you, but for me, I find them inadequate. And over time, I myself, and you may see this differently, but I've actually come, I've come to reject answer as a faithful category. I don't think Christian faith gives us an answer to this problem, but I do think it gives us a response, and that's different. Paul writes, I want you to know that my imprisonment, my suffering, my persecution has actually helped to spread the gospel. If I understand Paul, this is his response to the concern raised by the Philippians. It's not an answer, really. He doesn't explain why he's in prison. He doesn't explain why the Philippians are suffering, and they are. He just tells them who he is in the midst of it. I am still a follower of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, I am still a follower of Jesus Christ. I think what Christian faith tells us is that suffering is not something we explain. It's something we battle. Early in my ministry, I was in a church in Columbia, South Carolina. There's a woman named Sarah who was an elder in another church. Her husband actually worked on my staff. It's Sarah was in the church that our friend Reverend, Reverend Jenny McDevitt serves now. Sarah had a routine medical procedure and received some blood while in the hospital. It was the mid-1980s, and the nation's protocol to protect the blood supply was lacking. Sarah contracted HIV, which quickly became AIDS. In those days, the only thing worse than the disease was the fear that surrounded it and how those who contracted it were ostracized. Just reflect on our journey with COVID and you can get in touch with those emotions. It was a hard time for that congregation, this grandmother who was dying of AIDS. But one Sunday, Sarah came down out of the balcony, and she walked down to the front of the church, and she said, I've asked for a moment to give my testimony. She said, I have AIDS. It's going to kill me. I don't have long now. Some of you have said you're praying for me, and that means the world. I thank you. I hate what has happened to me. But I want you to know I trust in Jesus Christ and I am at peace. 
Jesus suffered too, you know. He suffered greatly. And he has shown us that suffering will not have the last word. My faith is unshaken, and I am not afraid. And then she said, and when it comes to you, and suffering will come to you, when it comes to you, remember that I was here, and do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I'll say more about this next week, but today my only wisdom is that I cannot count the number of people I have known like Sarah, many of them among you right now. For many, life has dealt cards that no explanation can justify, and to try to do so is insulting. But when we shift our gaze from the suffering to the strength of the sufferers. Well, that's another story. I have known many who have faced such realities with grace and strength and good cheer. And when some ask, where is God in all of this? I would suggest, look at them. Look at those who have known heartbreak and persevered. Look at those whose life have fallen apart and have remained gracious and strong, even joyful. Look at them. How do you explain them unless there is a powerful and loving God? Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.